1: Welcome to Cineversary, a new podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month we wish a happy birthday to a different film that's currently observing a joyous jubilee, everything from a 20th to a 100th anniversary. I'm your host, Eric Martin, creator and moderator of the Cineverse Film Discussion Group that meets weekly in the Chicagoland area. It's now March, and that means it's time to feat the 20th birthday of what has rapidly become one of the greatest science fiction movies, The Matrix, directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski. And like any good birthday party, we invite special guests to partake in the commemoration. This time around, I'm pleased to welcome William Irwin, professor of philosophy at King's College, and editor and author of several books, including The Matrix and Philosophy, Batman and Philosophy, The Simpsons and Philosophy, and many others. Together, we'll talk about why The Matrix is worth celebrating all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, what we can learn from the picture today, how it stood the test of time, and more. Before I jump into the rabbit hole with William, however, here's a bit of context on this month's film. According to Wikipedia, The Matrix is a 1999 science fiction action film written and directed by the Wachowskis and starring Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, Hugo Weaving, and Joe Pantoliano. It depicts a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside a simulated reality called the Matrix, created by thought-capable machines to control humans while using their bodies as an energy source. Hacker and computer programmer Neo learns this truth and is drawn into a rebellion against the machines, which involves other people who have been freed from the Matrix. The Matrix was first released by Warner Brothers in the United States on March 31, 1999, and it grossed over $460 million worldwide on a budget of $63 million. It was well-received by many critics and won four Academy Awards, as well as other accolades, including BAFTA Awards and Saturn Awards. The film has since appeared in lists of the greatest science fiction films, and in 2012 was added to the National Film Registry for preservation. The success of the movie led to the release of two feature film sequels, both written and directed by the Wachowskis, The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions. The Matrix currently holds an 88% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with an average critical rating of 7.6 out of 10. To set the scene, why don't we use the Wayback Machine and listen to the movie's original trailer. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Okay, it's now time to introduce Professor William Irwin. Bill, thanks for agreeing to be a guest on Cineversary. Thanks for having me, Eric. Pleasure to be here. So we're talking about the Matrix today, and we could go on talking for hours, if not days, but we'll try to keep it relatively brief for the listener. This is a deeply philosophical movie, and it's, of course, appropriate that I have Bill as a guest because he's edited some books on The Matrix, as well as some other uh, works of pop culture that would be of interest to anyone listening to this podcast. So we'll talk a little bit more about some of your works and uh, edited books a little bit later, Bill. But let's get into this a little bit The Matrix. It's now 20 years old, it was released in late March 1999. So, my first question is why is this movie worth celebrating all these? years later in your opinion, Bill. Why does it still matter and how has it stood the test of time? I think it's, it's worth
0: celebrating because it really remains a fun and engaging action movie. But more importantly, from my perspective, at least, it raises perennial philosophical questions uh, that remain vital. Uh, what is real? How can we know what's real? Should we prefer reality to deception? Is ignorance bliss? And in the, uh, the terms of the movie itself, right, uh, would you take the red pill or the blue pill and, and why? Why?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it continues to raise questions and it challenges the viewer. So I think in agreement, it's one of those films that it it doesn't let you get by with being a passive viewer. You have to be a bit more of an active participant in watching The Matrix. Would you agree?
0: Well, I I think that that's kind of funny in the sense that uh, when it first came out, at least, there were a fair number of people who simply watched it as a standard action movie. Uh, although for those of us who are more cerebrally uh, inclined, that might seem to be uh, an odd thing, but it, it really does work quite well simply on the level of, uh, of an action movie. I'd like to think that you get a whole lot more out of it if you think about all the issues and questions that, that it's raising. I certainly encountered a number of students early on who had seen the movie and had only the vaguest sense that something deeper than the, uh, than the action movie was going on beneath the surface.
1: Mm, yeah, I would agree. So for my take, I think that it has stood the test of time because, of course, it's proved to be you know, phenomenally popular, inspirational, influential, and thought-provoking. And it's also spawned two sequels. So whether you like or dislike the sequels, the point is it was a, a big enough movie, an important enough movie to spawn some sequels. It also matters because it set a new standard, first kind of set by 2001 A Space Odyssey. A standard for movies with a dystopian setting and films that explore the risks and threats of artificial intelligence, which is continually in the news. The special effects, my opinion, still hold up very well, and the myriad philosophical themes in The Matrix, I believe, keep it evergreen and relevant. Uh, it's also imbued with timeless elements that are borrowed from fairy tales, philosophy, religion, comic books, anime, classic science fiction, all of these things that, that can appeal to the, the child in all of us, the geek in all of us, the true believer found within each of us. Do you recall when you first saw it and where?
0: Yeah, I, I, I certainly do. I saw it in uh, in March 1999, probably a week or two after it came out. Like many people at the time, I was awaiting the Phantom Menace, which uh, turned out to be somewhat disappointing uh, in comparison. Here, here. So uh, I, I saw it with my wife, who at the time was my girlfriend. She is my wife, uh, now 20 years later. And I was teaching Descartes in my Introduction to Philosophy course at the time, and one of my students, he recommended that I go see the movie. I don't think it was necessarily on my radar. But like I said, I was teaching Descartes, and he saw right away, uh, unlike uh, some of his classmates who might have only seen The action movie level of it, uh, that what we were talking about in class about the nature of dreams and uh, the possibility of mass deception is what was going on in the movie. And so I saw it and really it became uh, an important part of my life and my teaching uh, ever since.
1: Cool story. Yeah, I think uh, I didn't catch it in its original theatrical run. I think it was one of those things where I rented it either on VHS or DVD. I think I just got a DVD player around that time, and I, I remember it was pretty uh, fascinating movie. But it really kind of paid off more in subsequent viewings, and to the point where I ended up, you know, purchasing it uh, on DVD and later on Blu-ray. And every revisit is equally rewarding. And I discover new things, as is often the case when you revisit a film, you you, you find new things that you didn't see perhaps the first time around.
0: Almost every scene or every scene in that movie is done with such love and such care and attention to detail that if you're paying attention, uh, then your experience is like you just said, that you see new things in it each time.
1: And to me, that's a mark of a a really good movie. You know, you could poke holes in the Matrix, like a lot of big budget action, adventure, science, uh, fantasy movies. Maybe the plot doesn't work too well for you. Maybe some of the characters are one dimensional. But I just think that uh, it was, like you said, invested with so much attention to, to detail, themes and messages and morals behind it, that it wasn't just kind of a paint by numbers. Hey, let's make a quick buck kind of a film. And I think the fact that we're continuing to talk about it today, and believe me, I think that a lot of other people besides, you know, just us on this podcast are going to be celebrating the fact that The Matrix is turning 20 around this time in 2019. We're going to see a lot more of it in the media and popular culture coming up in the weeks and months ahead, perhaps. I think it just speaks to the power and resonance of this movie.
0: I think so, and I hope so. And, and I've been looking ever since for something to come along to surpass it in terms of what really appeals to me as a, a piece of popular culture that works both as, as entertainment and uh, as a piece of thought-provoking fiction. And, and I haven't come across anything in the 20 years since that really has, uh, has even come close.
1: How about Inception?
0: I, I liked Inception a lot, but I don't think it, it measures up. It certainly uh, hasn't had the lasting influence that The that the Matrix has. I mean, it's mm-hmm. dream upon dream stacking and uh, purposely raises lots of philosophical questions. But I, I think there are holes in Inception much bigger than the holes that we find in uh, in The Matrix.
1: Interesting. In what ways do you think this film was influential on cinema and popular culture or set trends, Bill?
0: In 1999, and really for several years later, everyone had seen the movie. Uh, it was common language, uh, pop cultural literacy, I guess you might say, right? And so you, you could count on it in terms of communication. Everybody knew uh, what you meant when you said uh, taking the red pill or there is no spoon. Even the, the, the few people who hadn't seen the movie still knew that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And The Matrix was undeniably cool, something that popular that was that legitimately cool we're not talking you know taylor swift popular you know we're talking something that really was genuinely popular hugely popular and cool the leather outfits the sunglasses the music i mean that was just all cool and honestly it's all. most of it still looks very cool and toyota even got in on the game naming a model of car after it that's right and and for me, uh, the Matrix even made thinking cool. There were students who I came across who were thanking me for explaining the movie in philosophy class because it would make them look like a genius at the next keg party. You know, it, even thinking was cool for a little bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fringe benefits, as they say. Yeah,
0: that's right.
1: I agree with everything you say. Just to add to it, its visual effects, of course, were groundbreaking, particularly in its presentation of what's called bullet time, which also entered the public vernacular. And this is defined as kind of the visual impression of detaching the time and space of a camera or a viewer from that of its visible subject. So we see it, for example, when Neo is you know, sparring with Morpheus in the virtual reality dojo And one or both of them are kind of, you know, rising up and hanging in midair while the other one kind of uh, approaches or attacks or something. We see it later when the actual bullets are flying at Neo and Neo ducks down in slow motion and everything is kind of slowed down and then sped up. So bullet time suddenly became a thing. The Matrix, you know, of course, didn't invent bullet time, but it perfected this technique and inspired many later video games and movies to adopt this approach. So, Some examples in the wake of The Matrix, not chronologically, are 300, mm. Superman Returns, The Watchmen, uh, Spider-Man, iRobot, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, V for Vendetta, Kung Fu Panda, countless others, right? We've seen this either kind of aped or even lampooned in a movie like Shrek, if you recall. The great Matrix riff in there. Also, this film's action sequences, its fight choreography, and its wire-fu techniques inspired lots of copycats in later films. Wire-fu is defined as kind of a style of Hong Kong action cinema. It was popularized in pictures like those directed by John Woo, And starring Jet Li that combined thrilling kung fu moves with like wire work involving stunts accented by pulleys and wires and and, and things like that. So copycats of of this wire fu kind of technique after The Matrix included Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Charlie's Angels, X Men, Daredevil, and so on. And the Matrix also stimulated several subgenres, you could argue dystopian movies, cyberpunk films, alternate reality fantasy movies, pictures that examine the risks of AI. So, for example, think of Avatar, Minority Report, The Maze Runner, The Adjustment Bureau, Inception, Limitless, Snowpiercer. Ex Machina, Ready Player One, and even most recently Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Not sure if you've seen any of those, Bill.
0: Yeah, I've seen I've seen uh, plenty of them, and and Avatar is one that I uh, could have mentioned as well when when you brought up Inception before. I think those are both mm-hmm. really fantastic uh, examples of movies that that do a good job of being. Great entertainment and and really thought provoking as well. And as I was saying, uh, thinking became cool uh, among students of a certain kind. At at that point, as you illustrate with all those examples nicely, uh, Hollywood picked up on on the message as well that you could make a sort of philosophical, thought provoking, dystopian movie and uh, have a commercial success with it.
1: Absolutely. Also, the complete Matrix trilogy and its success. Encourage Hollywood to make more fantasy, superhero, and action adventure trilogies. Now, of course, the Matrix trilogy is not the first Hollywood trilogy. No way. Right. But what I'm saying is it perhaps encouraged other trilogies to come. The Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Spider-Man trilogy. But there's a lot of uh, superhero trilogies that have fallen within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for example, that uh, follow that kind of rule of three and so on. And The Matrix also spurred more interest in many, of course, philosophical and religious teachings as it borrows liberally from many works. I'm sure that you would be a better person to talk about this. But help me out, Bill. How do you pronounce Jean Baudrillard?
0: Ah, uh, Jean Baudrillard. Uh, that that That's you. kind of an interesting story, uh, if I could riff on that for a moment. Uh, it it comes up in in the movie itself, right, right in the beginning when uh, I think his name is Choi is visiting Neo and he's uh, give, gives him some sort of a disc out of a hollowed out copy of Baudrillard's famous work Simulacra and Simulation.
1: That's right. Right.
0: The Wachowskis wanted to have Baudrillard consult on the film. And uh, actually, it turns out they got Baudrillard completely wrong. They had the likes of Keanu Reeves and everybody else on the the set supposedly reading Baudrillard's and simulation. And uh, and Baudrillard, having read the script, uh, thought it was completely off uh, from his ideas, even though they thought it was illustrating them. And uh, he thought the movie itself completely missed the point. And just briefly, the the way that is, is that in, in Baudrillard's philosophy, reality has been replaced by uh, symbol and illusion. And in The Matrix, reality has not been replaced by symbol or illusion. It's simply been covered over by it. And so mm. what they ended up producing is a movie that m- is much closer to the philosophical worries of Plato and Descartes and Baudrillard had fancied himself as having gone far beyond uh, Plato and Descartes. and So it's kind of funny the way in which sometimes you end up getting a better product uh, by not having met the goal that you wanted. The other uh, funny connection that way, I think, is not really a philosophical one in, in that they wanted Will Smith to play Neo. And Will Smith read the, the script and and didn't quite get it or didn't like it. And mm-hmm. uh, they ended up casting Keanu Reeves, as we know. And I, I, you know, I, I think uh, Keanu Reeves was really the better choice.
1: Yeah, he's been called a cardboard cutout kind of actor. And actually, I think that works in his favor because this character is meant to be kind of a stone-faced cipher in a sense of, you know, we can project whatever we want as a viewer onto this character. Exactly. The enigmatic, mysterious nature of of what he's going through. He does emote sometimes in the movie, but he's mostly non-emotive. And I think that, again, serves the character of Neo well. So it's probably fortuitous that Will Smith declined. Yeah, yeah. But getting back to uh, some of the, and again, you are the uh, expert here on you know the philosophical influences, but from what I gathered, uh, you said uh, Jean Baudrillard, Plato and his Allegory of the Cave. Uh, you have Immanuel Kant, uh, who is the author of The Critique of Pure Reason, the Chinese philosopher Zhuangzi. Of course, Christianity and how you consider that you know, Neo is a Christ-like Messiah figure, Trinity's name conjures up the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity of Christian theology. You got references to Buddhism and its messages of you know living in the now and attaining enlightenment. Gnosticism and Hinduism and so on and so forth. So there's a real base of philosophy and religion uh, imbued in this film. Anything else you want to touch on? Well,
0: for sure, right? Plato's Allegory of the Cave, many listeners will be familiar with, right? The idea that these prisoners are held captive in a a cave watching shadows on a wall. And, And the crazy thing about the prisoners is that they don't realize that they're prisoners, right? And this is exactly paralleled in the Matrix where people are chained up to the Matrix itself, this simulation via these cables and wires that are actually in some ways symbolic of the chains in the cave, right? And they don't know that they're prisoners and they have to be freed one day. By a prisoner uh, who discovers the true nature of things. So really, it's very much a, a retelling of that story. Uh, and and really, uh, as you, you you put it nicely, a bullebase of different philosophical and, and religious elements. And so, in many ways, it ends up serving as a philosophical Rorschach test. And you can see virtually any philosophy uh, you might like in it because there's enough there to actually suggest it.
1: Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. If you want to dig deep enough, um, it, it you know it could be. Almost intimidating, if not downright frustrating to, you know, try to parse through if, you, if you're not as familiar like me with some of the famous philosophies in history that this movie kind of uh, cherry picks from. But it does intrigue the mind. It does make me and perhaps other viewers want to go back and, and you know, consult the original sources of some of these philosophical ideas. Well, let's get a little bit deeper into the rabbit hole here, Bill. What is the moral to the story here? What themes or messages are explored in the matrix? And before you start, we could probably go on for days on this uh, answer here. I have several bullet points, not in bullet time, no pun intended, but (laughs) bullet points that I want to get to, but I want to turn to you first. So what's your answer here? What themes do you identify in the matrix?
0: Well, so the, the, the oracle in some ways says it when she says, know thyself, right? She points to the sign uh, above her door in the kitchen and the oracle in the film is modeled on the historical uh, oracle at Delphi in, in many different ways. In many ways, that's the key, right? Uh, that, that Neo has to, uh, to come to know himself and it's more important how he comes to think of himself rather than what the oracle actually says. Of course, uh, on a more important level, maybe the story is about the importance of being in touch with reality and the idea that we're often not as in touch with reality as we think we are. And to some extent, we're controlled or manipulated by outside forces more than we think we are. What those outside forces are is in some ways Open to interpretation, and that's part of the fun of it, right? But really, there's an important message there of wake up, right? the The movie ends with the song from Rage Against the Machine, "Wake Up," and that that really uh, is the siren call throughout it. And the idea throughout, as well, is that we have to make hard choices and make sacrifices, right? This idea of choosing the red pill is not necessarily choosing the easy way. It's the road less traveled, as they say. And it's actually kind of easy to understand why someone would not choose it and might actually regret having chosen it. And I think that's why Cypher is such a great character. We can understand why he wants to forget reality and be put back into the matrix and why he's even willing to uh, turn traitor to do that.
1: Yeah, no, that's all good stuff. So I'm going to rattle off a few different uh, theories and themes and ideas here. And I'd, of course, like to get your input on each of them if you'd like to chime in. The first one that I think is easily identifiable as a theme in the matrix is freedom versus fate or destiny versus free will. So consider how the world inside the actual matrix is the opposite of free. Humans think and live as the machines program them to ponder as well how the Oracle can predict what's going to happen, which suggests fate. Yet think about how, despite her saying Neo is not the one, he proves to be the one after all. Now, to me, this suggests that his free will and determination overcame fate or destiny which is why the Oracle perhaps couldn't see it. It's also possible that she tells Neo he's not the one as a lie to get Neo to discover his own truth for himself. Now, recall that Neo said earlier that he doesn't believe in fate.
0: Let me actually stop you on that, because uh, she never really tells him he's not the one. She strongly implies it uh, and lets him draw, draw the conclusion for himself, right, and uh, I, I'm I'm right with you on the importance of uh, of free will and determinism in the uh, in the story, right? And uh, there's that great line and bit in the uh, the meeting with the oracle uh, where she says, "Don't worry about the vase," and he says, "What vase knocks it over?" And uh, she tells him, uh, "What's really going to bake your noodle later is would you have knocked it over if I didn't tell you that you were going right. to knock it over?" And so th- that really, in in, in microcosm, uh, is is all of what you've been talking about, right? And this question of really, do we have agency and free will in in making our choices? Is it possible to have a destiny? and yet have free will within the destiny, right? Because so much of this is bound up with the prediction of Morpheus discovering the one and Trinity falling in love with the person who is the one. So if there's destiny and if there's fate, is there the possibility of free will as well? And just great stuff, great stuff for discussion and pondering. Do
1: you think by the end of the movie, the filmmakers are coming down on one side or the other with a definitive, hey, uh, we're pushing fate or we're pushing free will more?
0: Well, you, you could read it one way or the other, I suppose. And I think that they're trying to have it both ways, right? That there is free will, but there is also a sense of perhaps destiny or fate. And it's such a vexing philosophical problem that to try to give a, a definitive answer to it in a movie is beyond impossible in terms of the asking. And, and honestly, I think that's one of the places where the, the sequels fall down. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, the Matrix opened this question of free will versus determinism and the, uh, the sequels tried to come to answers about it. And listen, the best uh, minds uh, all over the world have been puzzling about this for over 4000, 5000 years. We haven't come to any uh, really satisfactory conclusions. So, you know, how can we expect the Hollywood film and, and a couple of sequels to deliver on that?
1: Yeah, if you're taking your life lessons from a big budget Hollywood movie, I think you're in trouble. But anyway, (laughs) a few other themes I want to hit on here. The nature of reality. What is real? Is our life real and authentic or an illusion based on what we've constructed and what we perceive to be real? You mentioned Descartes, who theorized famously, I think, therefore I am. But what if AI has programmed you to think a certain way? Do you truly exist onto yourself? What if the world we think is true is a fantasy built to trick us, a matrix that we don't know exists? What's your thought on this, Bill? Yeah,
0: yeah. So this, this is right out of Descartes, right? Descartes worries that he could be the victim of a malicious demon, an evil deceiver who fools him about everything, including even things like the truths of mathematics and simple definitional truths that everything could be a mass deception. And today, we don't. We, if we're to contextualize that worry today, it wouldn't be, oh, maybe there's a demon or a ghost or a devil who's doing this to me. Uh, we would be inclined to say, well, could it be that we're the victims of virtual reality technology, right? Whether we entered it purposely ourselves and forgot we were in it or that we were always enslaved in it the way in which the characters in the, in the Matrix are. In some ways, this fear that Descartes had, this worry that he raised has actually become more pertinent uh, and more possible today than it was in his own time. And uh, certainly that's an important theme that echoes throughout the movie, as you point out.
1: Yeah, another crucial message in this film, the relationship between technology and human beings. So in the Matrix movie, it's ironic that the human characters often act more robotic and non-emotive than the Smiths, the agents, which seem more capable of creativity, adaptation, emotional expression. There's kind of a blurring line here between humanity and technology and how each is dependent on the other. Even the way the humans talk to other humans in the movie implies that they have robotic like qualities we hear things like he's a machine, you need to unplug, listen to me copper top, etc
0: yeah, no I, absolutely right and that that copper top line which comes up early in the film before we we know the truth about the matrix is terrific so who's in charge and in some ways, this is a worry a problem that the film raised in nineteen ninety nine that's all the more worrisome today, right? Where so many people are so connected to their phone and uh, do you have a phone or does the phone have you, right? Good point. <laughs> What's really in charge, us or the technology? It's it's a bigger worry today than it was in 1999.
1: Yeah, another important theme examined is the mind-body connection. Morpheus says that the body cannot live without the mind. And we see evidence of this in how if you die inside the matrix, your real body dies. So the mind cannot live without the body, I think is an important takeaway here. Another is the power of true love. Trinity's confession of love for Neo and her kiss magically bring him back to life, much like the kiss of the prince does in the classic children's stories, Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves.
0: Yeah, love is an incredibly powerful theme there, and it transcends the physical, right? He's he's dead. He's brought back to life. Certainly, this reflects the uh, the Christian themes in in the film, you know, in which Neo is uh, something of a, a Jesus figure, and Morpheus a God the Father figure, and Trinity the you know, Holy Spirit, if you will, and the power of love to uh, to transcend. It also, I think, references the novel Siddhartha. The Wachowskis are major fans of Herman Hell. And in particular, the story of Siddhartha, which concludes with a kiss where uh, Siddhartha kisses his friend Govinda on the forehead. And that finally leads to Govinda's enlightenment. It breaks through his uh, sort of intellectual block. Uh, and so although you pointed out nicely that so many of the characters, the humans are a bit robotic or machine like, love is something uh, that can break past that and raise us to a higher level potentially.
1: Yeah, this is true. Bill, who do you think this movie appealed to initially when it was released in 1999? And who do you think it appeals to nowadays? And bonus question, if that appeal has changed, what does it say about The Matrix's impact, influence, and legacy?
0: Well, I, I mean, I haven't done demographic study on this, so I'm, I'm shooting from the hip.
1: Yeah, what's your hunch?
0: My hunch is that probably the uh, the film initially appealed more to younger viewers when it came out and that its audience Probably skewed male, right? It had all of the trappings of uh, an action movie that typically appeals to younger men. And from the people who first told me about it and were first excited about it, they were typically uh, younger and male, which is not to say exclusively so, although younger for sure. Uh, just the the ways in which the film Seemed transgressive at the time, with well, really the uh, the leather uh, imagery and and costuming and the loud, aggressive music. I think a lot of that would have been a, a turn off, at least initially, for older audiences who you know might have seen it as just too loud, too aggressive, too transgressive. I don't I don't think that's necessarily the case today. As I sort of mentioned before, it was really the common language that I could count on in a college classroom for a good number of years after it came out. Uh, I could count on virtually everyone having seen it, or at least being familiar with the characters and the themes and some of the major lines. These days, when I ask a class of college students if they've seen it, only about a quarter of them have.
1: Unbelievable.
0: Uh, yeah, which <laughs> disappoints me, right? Because- uh, m- many more of them will have seen The Phantom Menace, unfortunately, than will have seen The Matrix. However, I have some hope in preparing uh, to talk with you about this today. Just a couple of days ago, I watched it with my 15-year-old son. Sort of ashamed to say it was the first time he had ever seen it. Uh, he had certainly seen The Phantom Menace many, many times and is a huge Star Wars fan. But despite the fact that his uh, father had a couple of books on The Matrix and posters of it and all kinds of things like that, he had never seen it. But we watched it together and he really liked it, I'm very proud to say. Cool. He got it on, on a deep level. Didn't just see it as an action movie. I mean, I guess the fact that his philosophy professor father likes it keyed him into to looking. But But he really got it on a pretty good deep level. But he also really enjoyed it on the level of an action movie. And he's a really big gamer, and it struck me in watching it with him how much uh, the movie had video game qualities to it. They, of course, put out a video game, Enter the Matrix afterwards, but it was apparently not a great video game, and and maybe the technology wasn't up to the task, etc., Really, these days, uh, you can find quite a lot of cerebral stuff going on in better video games. And you almost wonder that if uh, video game technology was where it was in 1999, if things might not have been different or really if what I'm looking for when I'm looking for the next Matrix might not be found in the movies the next time, but really might be found in a video game.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting take there in answer to this question, I actually did a little bit of research, uh, as, as is my job as the moderator or the host of this podcast. I want to make sure I know what I'm talking about. I was actually really surprised to find, because again, I did not see it theatrically on its original release, that The Matrix got an R rating from the MPAA. So it would have probably had a more limited audience of adults during its original theatrical release. And those adults were likely predominantly, as you said, you know, male science fiction, action adventure fantasy fans. But it's interesting because 20 years later, I look at The Matrix, I just watched it at my film group last week, and I see that it doesn't necessarily merit an R rating, in my opinion, based on, I guess, how desensitized we've become to violence and in-your-face action and an adult kind of content like that.
0: That's really it, right? I mean, it was very controversial at the time for the, for the violence, the gratuitous gun violence in particular. Mm-hmm. And watching it with my son, I asked him about that afterwards. I mean, he's 15 years old, and, and so for him, you know, he's post-9-11 growing up, but really the biggest things that have happened in his lifetime have been mass shootings,
1: yeah, sadly.
0: Yeah, he's very sensitive to that. And he found the you know the violence very tame, mm. certainly compared to uh, some more recent movies and certainly compared to a lot of the video games that he plays. So kind of strange, right? That had to be the big worry and uh, the big reason for the R rating. So yeah, and that's not to say it wasn't justified at the time, but as you say, it, it wouldn't earn an R rating these days.
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting to dig into this. Uh, I think 20 years later, it's likely that The Matrix has a much wider appeal, and despite its R rating for violence and profanity, is probably considered by parents to be more acceptable to their you know pre-adolescent and teenage kids. In other words, we've, as I said, become more desensitized to the kind of violence shown in this movie. Which is probably more of like a PG 13 kind of film nowadays. And plus, the deeper philosophical and existential questions it raises and forces audiences to kind of ask themselves, maybe that could motivate parents and adults to allow more kids younger than age 17 to watch it. Additionally, I think because AI and its threats are increasingly being reported on and depicted in pop culture nowadays. I think it's safe to assume that The Matrix is more widely watched and appreciated today by a more diverse array of viewers. But my hunch could be wrong. And what you said earlier kind of puts me back a little bit. You said that you queried your what philosophy class or one of your classrooms, and I think you said a quarter of them had seen it, which uh, is kind of disappointing, right? Yeah, it is. In any event, um, I'm not going to feel sorry for a big budget Hollywood movie that made zillions of dollars. But on the other hand, it makes me feel a little bit old that something uh, uh, this action adventure is maybe not as appreciated today by some circles.
0: It might have to do with the splintering of, uh, of tastes and the availability of media. It mm. might be very difficult to find any movie that more than half of my, uh, my class has ever seen. You know, I said probably more of them have seen phantom menace but i'm not even 100 percent sure of that we just have moved away from the times when uh, you could count on at that same period in time i could count on all of them having seen and you know some episodes of the simpsons and seinfeld Right, and of course not only have they not seen those at this point but there, there's no television show that i could find certainly a quarter of them have all seen so th- th- that accounts for part of it i think
1: yeah the times they are changing Bill, what elements from the Matrix have aged well, and what are showing some wrinkles in your opinion?
0: I think in general, that it's aged very well. It it had probably been a few years since I had reviewed it uh, when I watched it with my son the other night. And uh, there was nothing to be embarrassed about in watching it and loving it, uh, which is not true of every movie and every song, et cetera, that we like in the past. And as you said, the bullet time still looks cool. I mean, it was great at the time and it, it just generally it's aged well. I mean, the thing that sticks out. And that is kind of funny is the uh, the phones in the in the, uh, the movie. But considering that it really is set in 1999, uh, at least within the, the Matrix world, it's perfectly appropriate. But we had no idea in 1999 that phones would become as dominant as they have. The only thing in that sense that doesn't really fit, of course, is when you uh, get outside of the Matrix onto the world of the ship, you'd expect them to have some better technology than they really <laughs> have. But you can't fault them in 1999. Ninety nine and having made the movie just like when you see the uh the the monitors still with the green script on them and sure. all that kind of thing. I mean, the cgi isn't great but it isn't embarrassingly bad none of the movie really is slow mm-hmm. uh, and I, I compare that for example with although i love the original star wars movie there are parts of that that are just slow and of course the lightsaber battle seem embarrassingly slow and uh in the first star wars movie and there's none of that that sticks out as bad or slow from my point of view.
1: Yeah, my opinion, most of the special effects to me still look fresh and are effectively realistic. And the movie's sound design, I think, remains exceptional. Yeah. But getting back to what you said about uh, some of the technology that may look a little bit dated and so forth. And hey, what's what's an old analog payphone, you know, aesthetic doing in a movie like The Matrix in 1999? I think that speaks to the Wachowskis' love of cyberpunk. You have a lot of cyberpunk aesthetics, which feature high and low-tech elements, as well as an overlap between sophisticated technology and something that Bruce Sterling described as, quote, the modern pop underground, unquote. This still resonates, and it's being mirrored in other films, so some modern examples That fit within the cyberpunk subgenre, which may have drawn influence from the Matrix for that matter, include Ready Player One, Blade Runner 2049, Elysium, the remakes of RoboCop and Ghost in the Shell, and uh, Tron Legacy.
0: You're right. The uh... The, uh, the rotary phone stuff is actually kind of cool for that cyberpunk reason. But I, I think uh, if you look at the, the cell phones that they have in the movie, I'm sure they were the best possible available in 1999. Right. But even the brand, I, I think it's a Nokia cell phone, right? Nokia was the dominant cell phone at the time with huge market uh, share, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to show some wrinkles. So things like uh, the cubicle office where Neo works, you see those huge honking computer monitors, which are you know relics of in antiquated time. This is only 20 years ago, but technology that is dated really stands out like a sore thumb in movies like this. But what are you going to do? It just is what it is.
0: I mean, then again, when you look at the the clothes, though, I mean, they, they were cool as hell in 1999, and they still look really cool to me. I mean, nobody would have the nerve to really go around dressed like that, yep. you know, outside of some club or something like that. It still looks pretty cool.
1: Black is the new black, as they say. It's never going to go out of style. Yeah. But yet, in answer to this question, I think what uh, is showing some wrinkles is the fact that, as you said, Bill, in a world with increasing gun violence, this movie's reliance on you know high body count artillery, an ample supply of bullets, and you've got innocent bystanders getting shot to pieces, this can turn some people off, particularly in yeah. an age where we hear about horrific mass shootings on a regular basis. So that may rub some people the wrong way, and maybe the R rating is deserved. Bill, this is a birthday celebration after all, 20 years of The Matrix, and birthdays are all about presents, except it's the fans who continue to get the gifts, I would contend. So what is this film's greatest gift to viewers?
0: I don't think anything other than what we've discussed already, right, which is that I I think it remains unsurpassed in its ability to deliver thought-provoking entertainment. There may be more thought-provoking films and there may be more entertaining films, but I have yet to find one that combines being thought-provoking and entertaining in that combination. So that's the gift as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, I think its greatest gift is that it's a rare combination of a thrilling science fiction, adventure, action movie that also makes you think and think hard and think deeply. It has rich text as well as rich subtext. It has plenty of eye candy and pyrotechnics. It also has themes and messages that linger long in your mind. And to me, that's the mark of a good and memorable film worth celebrating. Bill, do you think the matrix will still be watched and considered relevant in another 20 years? What's your hunch here?
0: I hope so. I think so. I think a lot will depend on what computer technology looks like in in 20 years. As we've referenced and discussed a few times in our uh, conversation, artificial intelligence is a, a threat, a consideration that looms large now, larger now than it did 20 years ago, Will the matrix be even more relevant in in 20 years because we're that much closer to artificial intelligence technology, closer to the worry that uh, we could be trapped in a matrix-like scenario? Or will that threat seem silly, something that really was unwarranted? It's just really hard to say. I hope so. I hope it will stand the test of time because even if the artificial intelligence issues don't seem as relevant, or even if they seem more relevant, the, the more perennial questions about uh, being manipulated and not being in touch with reality and not being willing to look at the true nature of reality, those questions uh, are really embedded in the human condition in such a way that they won't go away. They won't cease being relevant.
1: Yeah, I second all those sentiments, and I would just add that special effects, yep, they may improve, and by comparison, make this movie look more dated in the realm of fantastic visuals. But as artificial intelligence progresses in the real world, the the issues that this movie tackles about our dependence on AI and its associated risks... Those issues will remain relevant, if not somewhat prescient. So I think that's in the movie's favor, of course. And you can make a case that this movie will remain relevant indefinitely for all the reasons already stated. It's a movie that serves as a cautionary tale that will never grow old in a world increasingly reliant on technology. I think that we continue to go back to classics like 2001 A Space Odyssey for the same reason, because those themes remain evergreen.
0: Yeah, evergreen. Nice way to put it.
1: So, Bill, what are you currently working on that listeners should check out?
0: Well, I I never pass up an opportunity for shameless self-promotion, Eric, so thanks for asking. So I have the book, The Matrix and Philosophy, uh, which is uh, what led us to conversation together, and and, uh, another book, More Matrix. And Philosophy, Revolutions and Reloaded, Decoded, that deals with the sequel. So people who are interested in The Matrix and uh, listening to us uh, on this podcast will maybe want to check those out. And I continue to edit a whole series of books on popular culture and philosophy. And there's a website connected with that. Philosophy.com. It's just andphilosophy.com. And you can see a whole list of recent titles, uh, some of the recent titles that might be of some interest to, uh, to listeners include Westworld and Philosophy, Doctor Strange and Philosophy. And we have forthcoming books on The Good Place and Philosophy, Black Mirror and Philosophy, and Black Panther and Philosophy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I checked out your page on Amazon and I was just stunned. I mean, you've covered pretty much every major film and pop culture phenomenon. You've got Batman in philosophy, Star Wars in philosophy, Seinfeld in philosophy, The Simpsons in philosophy. The list goes on and just all of these titles are so tantalizing. I want to check a lot of these out.
0: It's a team effort, uh, which I probably haven't made clear enough. Starting, you know, even before the Matrix and philosophy, uh, the books are all collections of chapters contributed by various philosophy professors. So mm-hmm. it's not as if I write the whole thing myself.
1: You're the editor, correct?
0: Yeah, I'm the editor, the ringleader, uh, whatever you may want to to call me. Really, been a, a passionate mission of mine to to take philosophy to the general public by connecting it with what they're already interested in in some area of popular culture.
1: Now, are there any other books that you are authoring by yourself or with others or other maybe non-book projects you want to make mention of?
0: Yeah, I appreciate you asking. Uh, I had mentioned uh, Herman Hesse's book, Siddhartha, back uh, a little while ago, and I've actually written a sequel to Herman Hesse's novel that I call Little Siddhartha. Hesse's novel, as I had mentioned, concludes with this uh, this kiss that leads to uh, a vision, but it leaves an important loose end, which is that Siddhartha, which is a fictionalized retelling of the story of the Buddha in Hesse's novel, he has a son, and uh, the son leaves him and uh, the question has always remained with me what happens to the Sun
1: oh so cool fan fiction gone large
0: yeah that in a way that that's what it is kind of like fan fiction uh, meets a tribute band I've really done my best to, to, to capture Hessa's voice so that it it, it reads uh, you know I hope like a, a lost extension uh, of, of
1: the novel and is this published already and available
0: it is it's published and available on Amazon and all that kind of good stuff.
1: Well, Bill, you are a busy guy. Keep up the great work, and it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much again for taking the time to appear on Cineversary.
0: Pleasure is mine, Eric. Thank you.
1: My thanks again to William Irwin for taking a deeper dive into The Matrix with me. Now it's time for standing ovations. This is where I give a shout-out to a movie, book, website, TV program, podcast, or other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers. My standing ovation for March is a film that preceded The Matrix by one year, yet is regarded by many to be as good, if not better, than The Matrix in the sci-fi dystopian subgenre. It's Dark City, directed by Alex Proyas. Here's the setup per Wikipedia. Rufus Sewell plays John Murdoch, an amnesiac man who finds himself suspected of murder. Murdoch attempts to discover his true identity and clear his name while on the run from the police in a mysterious group known only as The Strangers. If you like The Matrix, folks, you'll likely dig this flick, so give it a watch. You can pick up Dark City on DVD or Blu-ray. I also want to encourage you to visit a website, cineversegroup.com. That's the portal for my Cineverse Film Discussion Group that I launched 14 years ago and which continues to meet weekly in the south suburban Chicago area. We're a democratic film society that watches and then discusses a predetermined movie that our members pick on a rotating basis. At cineversegroup.com, and that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E. You can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the films we study. I'm often asked about why I created Cineverse and this podcast you're listening to, for that matter, and the answer is it's to foster an appreciation for an intelligent dialogue about memorable movies. Watching a movie is fun, but, you know, to me, interpreting it, talking about it, sharing opinions and theories about it, that's where the fun is. I find the real pleasure is in digging deeper to learn how and why a film was made, the impact it's had on culture, society, and other movies, why that picture has the power to evoke a strong emotional reaction in each of us, and what it can teach us today. If you want to email me a comment or a suggestion for a movie we should feature on this podcast, you can reach me, Eric Martin, at group at gmail Also, do me a favor, would you? Tell your friends and family about this show. And if you like this podcast, leave us good reviews on whatever platform you hear it from, especially iTunes. We really appreciate that. Finally, don't miss next month's episode of Cineversary. That's when we'll turn our attention to the 25th birthday of one of the greatest films of the 1990s, and arguably Quentin Tarantino's best. It's Pulp Fiction, originally released in 1994. (laughs) This has been your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life and cherish those classic movies because they're not getting older folks, they are just getting better. Thanks again for giving us a listen.